The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hello, everyone. I'm glad you could join me for today's show. Thanks for being present for just a little bit. Whether you're checking us out live on the air right now or you're listening later to the podcast on demand, I'm glad you could tune in. So to start off, you know, we've all heard the famous quote from Franklin Delano Roosevelt during his first inaugural address. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You know, such a famous statement. But have you ever really thought about it? You know, what what is he talking about? I mean, what is a healthy amount of fear? Aren't there times that we're supposed to be afraid? Isn't it kind of a a protection mechanism. I remember back in the 80s, there was a great book that was published in uh, 1987 by Dr. Susan Jeffers called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And that book offered insight and tools to deal with common fears like public speaking and being assertive. So are you really just supposed to feel it and kind of push through it? Isn't fear supposed to protect you? Where do our fears come from? So we're going to be answering a lot of those questions today with my guest about living with fear and how we can overcome it. Dr. Carla Marie Manley is a recognized authority on fear and fear-based disorders such as trauma, anxiety, and depression. And she's written an amazing book called Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. And the book was released just this past April. You can also find her online at drcarla.com. I believe that's right. You know, I tried to print this out, uh, Carla, and now I don't see the print of your website. Can you share your website with us? Absolutely. drcarlamanley.com. And Carla has a Dr. C. Carla. And... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to get that right. And I wanted to mention your website. And then when I printed it out, I'm like, oh, no, it didn't print. And I forgot exactly what it was. But I do want to mention that. So find her online for all kinds of great resources. And I'm so glad you could join me today to talk about this. I'm working my way through the book. So much great information, very experiential. You put lots of great exercises and things that people can work through because fear is, uh, I mean, it's just such a big, uh, a big thing, a big issue in people's lives. You know, fear just stops us from doing so many things. It stops us from really living the life that, that we're supposed to live. And you talk about this in the book and you share some of your personal experiences and the own journey that you took out of paralyzing fear. So I was hoping maybe we could start off and talk about that a little bit first, you know, some of your experiences that led you to write this book. Absolutely. Um, I believe that my life experiences were intended to be as they were in order to help me understand that fear is my calling in life and working with fear and joy that is there you know, that is my calling in life and in essence I grew up as the ninth child in a family of 10 Catholic upbringing and was taught you know some of the common things girls are supposed to be nice and sweet and and where children are to do as they're told and be quiet and you know be invisible and um, so when I was growing up something in me we had a very chaotic in some ways 
traumatic household. And um, I knew instinctively that I wanted to be a therapist. And I had this one little idea in my head, and I don't know where it came from, but I really wanted to be like Lucy in the Charlie Brown comic strips. I wanted to be a therapist and have my own little shop and give advice and support for a nickel. And um, more than five cents, I hope you're getting now, right? You know, Lucy, like five cents, psychiatric advice. I love to volunteer. (laughs) So, you know, it all evens out. But um, what ultimately happened is um, I tested very highly um, on IQ tests. And so my family, you know, trying to support me really wanted me to do something different than my than being a teacher or a therapist. Um, the message was very strong and overt that that was too low level for me. So I was pushed and pushed to be an attorney. And so as I graduated college, I did have my teaching credential, but um, enrolled in an amazing um, law school. But something in me knew that it wasn't right. And I became severely anorexic and almost died. And in that process, it was my body that really spoke for me and said, no, we're not going this route. This is not right for you. And so I quit law school, much to my family's dismay and and disappointment. And... um, took a little bit of time to try and figure out what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do was to enroll in a master's program in counseling. And I did. And again, my family was highly disappointed. And um, my father didn't even go to my graduation. But um, as life would have it, I was by then married and um, soon had my first child. And so I did what my family expected of me and my husband expected of me, which was to be a really high performer in the investment world. And I did a great job of making lots of money for other people, but I wasn't happy. And I realized, you know, a decade into it, or actually earlier than that, that I needed to do something because I wanted to be a good role model for my children, if nothing else. And I realized that I was teaching them to live an unfulfilled life, even though on one hand, I'm telling their mommy's here to support you, be the best of whatever you want to be, you know, an artist, anything, and, and life will unfold. And here I was living a lie because everything looked great on the outside, but my marriage wasn't good. Um, My work life was very bleak for me, very dark, and I wasn't happy, even though I looked happy on the outside. So I ultimately spoke to my husband and said, hey, you know, I really need to go back to school. I really want to get my doctorate. I want to be a clinical psychologist. And he said, no, no, I like the way things are. You have enough education. This worked really well for me. And I realized he had everything he wanted, all the support, all of that, but I didn't. And so the marriage ultimately ended. And all of this was very scary for me, really intimidating, but I'm, I'm strong. And so I went back to school. My marriage, of course, ended. I was looking at my entire life going topsy-turvy. And it was only once I was in doctoral school where I realized what it was to start feeling happy, what it was start, what it felt like to be me. I had never known really me since a tiny child. And so as I met people who thought like me and, and felt like me, I thought, this is what life is. This is right. And so I started investigating what it was that held me back. And had you asked me three years or a year prior to this, was I a person who was held back by fear? I would have said no. I would have said, Diane, I'm tough, I'm strong, I'm amazing, high performer. No, 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 fear me. No, no, no. 
But when I realized that it was fear, and so I started investigating it, and I started investigating it qualitatively and quantitatively. I created my own research tool so that I could do research that would allow me to be respected by the outside world rather than just my own theories. And so I developed the questionnaires. I did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of research interviews, did the stats on it to come to understand what it is. Was I unique in being held back for the majority of my life by this intense fear that was largely irrational? Or was um, it something common where I could use my experiences to help other people? And I discovered that it was the latter of the two, that Everyone that I talked to who was willing to discuss fear with me, and many people, you know, at the beginning weren't weren't until I figured out that it was better to do it by formal questionnaires, that there is this thing called destructive fear, and then its counterpart, constructive fear. And so as I began working with it, I realized that my gift, my calling, my vocation was to help people not live the stunted, immobilized kind of life I had lived for so long, the false life, but to find their truth, even though it's scary, right? But to find their truth and to do the work to create the life that they had dreamed of. And that's it. Well, I I mean, I really relate to your story, what you're saying, because you're right. I think everybody feels that to some degree. And, and I want to delve into these different um, aspects of fear, because I never thought that they're, you know, I thought fear was fear, you know, and, and then when I really started thinking about it, as I was reading your book, it made a lot of sense of the different faces of fear that we're going to talk about. But I think your experience, which I'm sure so many people can relate to so many friends that I have, uh, people that I've come across, you know, in, in my life or just work life. I mean, how many people have lived a life that's not theirs out of fear of letting people down, expectations that their family has, you know, going to school for something that they they hate, you know, entering a career that they hate, and just all of that unhappiness that can be avoided and what, what you're helping people. And it's not too late, right? I mean, you can make changes to live the life that you really want to live and not be held back by other people's expectations and your own fear. But I think it, it's so common. I think more people than not are, are living the experience that you described. It, it's amazing. I absolutely agree, Diane. And that's why I wanted to do the research. That's what drove me to write the book because I believe, and I, I did, when we're hurting and we're depressed and we're struggling just to do what we're supposed to do, we don't realize, we look at our neighbors, our friends, and think their lives are perfect, right? But yet, the truth is, if, we're, if we, many of us, are pretending, as I was pretending, so that it looked great to the outside world, when I finally told my friends what was happening, which was, of course, unavoidable because I was in the midst of a divorce, they said, I had no idea. We thought you had everything. And I said, yeah, that was that was the sham. That was the game. I couldn't, right. I could not let people. So if we are all or many of us are doing that to some degree, and that was why I wanted to research it. And what I came across, you know, what I, what I embraced in the research and really came to see is the people who acknowledged fear, that it existed, that it's a normal part of life, they tend to be 
more fulfilled, happier, more aware. Those who are constricted, closed, not willing to discuss or even acknowledge that they're living the life that you were, you so beautifully explained, the expectations of others versus one's inner truth. And those people who are not willing to go into that area are the most immobilized, unfulfilled, and unhappy. It's so sad when you think about it, because when you get to, you know, your, your 70s, your 80s, and you're looking back at your life, who wants to have regrets? I mean, it's just so sad to think that, you know, when you look back, you want to look at your accomplishments and, and you're proud and happy of things that you've done in your life. Not, well, I wish I could have, and just having that horrible feeling of regret. I think it's it's just so sad. But I wanted to delve into some of the, the, difference, uh, the differences in fear, because obviously, like, okay, for, for example, my sister has kind of an irrational fear of sharks. So if I mention uh, we're going to the beach or something like that, she she's thinking sharks, you know, or shark attack. Now, of course, we should have a healthy fear of sharks, right? I mean, they're, right. they're scary. Yes. But that's a, but that's a different fear than my fear of, you know, having a confrontation with someone or speaking up at work or fear of, of condemnation from my parents. Is, so is that what you mean by destructive fear and constructive? Absolutely. And um, so let me outline it. We start with fear, just the giant boulder of fear, right? And then right. we- Bold letters. To, I'm sorry? <laughs> I said bold letters of fear, right? Yes, the big, this, you know, big, right. big and bold. <laughs> and then we look at this part, this rational fear, like your sister's fear of sharks, like a fear of the neighbor's dog that bit you once, that sort of thing. The fear of walking outside the crosswalk in, you know, crazy traffic. All rational fear meant to keep us alive. Good fear. However, if any of those go overboard and we become afraid of going in the ocean, even if there are no sharks around because of a fear of sharks, or we become afraid of going out on a walk because we're we become, we generalize and become afraid of every dog, then the fear is taking hold of us and it starts becoming irrational. So then we move away from the rational fear and we come to the place where we're looking at irrational fears, fears that really aren't grounded in reality. And so I put that, I give that the heading of destructive fear because what it does when our brain gets going and tells us we, we are not safe, not safe to speak our truth, not safe to live the life we want to live, then that starts, you can see why I came up with the term destructive fear. It becomes destructive. We become less than, we retract, we become immobilized, we do things to please others. Um, and so that part is destructive fear. Destructive fear is very loud, noisy, controlling, dark, very different energy. I look at it as a big bully, right? Just this big bullying force that we've become so accustomed to, we don't even realize that it's fear that has us in its control. On the other side, if we are able to start imagining this and slowing it down, on the other side of fear, if fear had two faces, is this very gentle, honest, true, kind voice that wants us to succeed, to be our best selves, to be at peace, to not be stressed, 
And so we've become so used in our culture, so used to just noticing this really aggressive, stressful kind of entity that we forget or maybe never experienced. Slowing down and getting used to the constructive side of that very same fear. And then once we become used to both destructive fear and constructive fear and start having a dialogue between the two, and I'll give you an example in a minute, then we can meet transformational fear, which is the amalgamation of all of it when it's put into action. So here's the example. We have a woman and could be a man, but I'll just use a woman today. We have a woman who's in a very toxic relationship. She doesn't like her partner. Her partner is mean, unkind, very sarcastic. Yet her inner voice, oh, and by the way, this person grew up with a very mean, sarcastic, angry father. So in some ways it's familiar, but it's not comfortable for her. And she wants something different. Destructive fear goes through her mind and says, nobody else is going to love you. You're too old to change relationships. You better just stay here. You know, no, you're damaged goods. No, just stay here. And besides, you have financial issues. So don't rock the bit. Just deal with it. Just deal with it. And maybe, hey, maybe you can just have an affair to release some of the stress. Okay. Or maybe we can go buy 20 pair of new shoes. Everything is going to be fine. Those are some of the voices of destructive fear. Sound familiar, Diane? Is that? Oh, yeah. I've heard, I've heard those stories over and over. You know, friends that don't want to leave relationships. Yeah, or leave a job, you know, just stay there, better the devil you know, those kind of things. Yes, fill in the blank. But you can see how common it is. And we can fill in the blank with husband, wife, you know, mean parent, mean boss, you know, whatever it is, fill in the blank. So then we become so used to that, we don't realize that that's fear keeping us there. We just think it's some sort of voice that's the truth. Now... Let's take the same gal and she begins to do the work with constructive fear. She'll start hearing this little voice when she's out on a walk and she's after she's attended, you know, a therapy session or been reading a good book that's, you know, helpful to her or going to a woman's group. She'll hear this little voice very quiet at first saying, hey, you're really worthwhile hey, you can make this work. You can get out of this situation. You're not stuck here. Hey, you have other friends who will support you and you'll be able to rent an apartment and get this figured out and do some work on yourself. That's the kind of voice of constructive fear. Again, let's say she's in a job that's unhealthy. It's the same voice that would be saying, hey, let's put out some resumes. Let's talk to some people about getting some, you know, our CV updated or whatever it is and getting some good letters of recommendation. Let's go to some support groups to build, you know, some sense of self-confidence here. So again, that's constructive fear. It depends, you know, it needs, it's the other side of destructive fear. It's the yin and the yang of it. So once we start having this dialogue with the self, which of course we must first be aware of the two entities, the two, the two faces, the two sides, then as she's growing stronger and this new voice is familiar and the possibilities, notice that this constructive fear brings up possibilities. 
And that's the beautiful part of it. And then constructive fear lets meet our really big friend, which now here's where the fear really comes in. Destructive fear is going to pounce here because it likes you to stay stagnant. So as this woman is envisioning a new life, a new career, being on her own, something's going to come in and say, uh-uh-uh, uh-uh, you can't do this. Nope, nope, stay where you are, be uncomfortable, deal with the pain, whatever it is. And so by making steps, little steps, one smart step at a time toward the goal, toward an action, whether it's writing a resume, whether it's going to a support group, whether it's seeking a psychotherapist, talking to your spiritual advisor, meditating. As you do more and more of these proactive self-care steps, self-awareness steps, you eventually build transformation. And it becomes transformational fear. And that is the essence of the book, Joy from Fear. It helps you do that work inside yourself, as well as, you know, offering insights on PTSD and anxiety and all of that. But then it helps you understand that this is something you can cultivate inside your own being and have that be your friend for the rest of your life. That's interesting because it sounds like what you're saying is, so in the book, you're giving people action steps to, you know, things, baby steps of things that they can do. Like you said, you know, maybe take a support group or, or something like that, or, you know, even just updating your resume, getting it ready, you know, taking one step to send out that one thing to change that situation, you know, or if it's a personal thing, talking to someone about a a living situation, looking for an apartment or something like that which can be scary things, but if you're in control of it, you're making those decisions, that's going to help um, release you from the destructive fear. Now, just a question, when you're, when you're talking about destructive fear, th- is this separate from like an extreme phobia, like fear of flying or, you know, water or swimming or, or something like that? Or they're the, they're the same thing, would you say? I would say it's such a good point, Diane. Um, I would put... A specific phobia into the category of destructive fear, but it's a very specific type of destructive fear, not the kind that sort of chronically and generally creates chronic stress, burnout, depletion kind of thing. But a specific phobia like a fear of flying might be much easier to address than a life riddled with destructive fear, if that makes any sense. Interestingly enough, though, sometimes people will have a phobia, and the phobia is often a focal point for other unaddressed anxiety. Not always. Sometimes it is very specific. But sometimes it is a place for the energy, all of the fear to focus. And so in those cases, sometimes you cure the 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 spider phobia or the fear of flying and it jumps to something else. Not always though. Right. That's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of a a really good friend of mine that I've known for over 20 years who seems to always be generally unhappy. But if I brought up something like this to her and said, you know, why, why are you afraid to leave that, you know, lousy $15 an hour job, which are much smarter than and, and could do something else. Like, I don't think she even realizes that she has a fear 
she's like, oh, you know, it's a good company. It's okay. But I, but I can see her numbing herself. She just doesn't want to feel anything. You know, she numbs herself with alcohol and, and just kind of sweeps everything under the rug rather than addressing the fear where, like you said, if she, if she had an obvious, if there was an obvious fear of like, oh, I can't get on an airplane, then that would be easier to address than like this lingering kind of underlying thing that people just don't want to, we don't want to feel uncomfortable, right? <laughs> we, we don't want to feel that. So we Absolutely. can cover it up. Absolutely. Absolutely, Diane. And I'll call your friend. I don't know her name, but I'm just going to call her Jen. So I have somebody, you know, <laughs> yeah. just her to. So we have Jen here. And Jen is very similar to me, with the exception that I don't have, you know, addictions to to alcohol or food or that sort of thing, um, which is one of the, which is, can, can make it much harder because you're really feeling your feelings. But so when we look at Jen, her similarity to what propelled me into this realm is that you become so used to it that it is the norm. And it's only in my case, for example, my children were starting to get older and as they got older and, you know, I'm working, you know, full time and raising them and blah, 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 as as they, they needed me less. That is when I noticed my discomfort more because I wasn't so busy. And so with your friend Jen, her discomfort may be just so normal to her now. That is why I think it's such an amazing concept of destructive fear if she worked with me right she would come to see that or with somebody who does this method she would find that underneath where she is at that stuckness is a fear of living a life that she truly wants you know would have to find out what the root causes of of it are does she not believe she's good enough does she not believe she's smart enough worthy enough is she just terrified of change? And what does that mean to her? You know, why is she terrified of change? Because we are, as human beings, innately often very terrified of change because we associate it on a very primal level with unsafety. So being able to break through of some of that, she would be would be thrilled and happily surprised ultimately to find out she is sitting in a place whether it's employment or otherwise where something's strangling her and chaining her to that office chair right well i'm gonna send i'm sending her this book for sure and um, i'm glad we're using jen i don't know if she'd want me to make her the case study <laughs> but it's someone that is, is dear to me that I'm, I'm hoping that i can help we'll be right back in a minute taking a short break continuing our talk of overcoming fear. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. When listeners like you contribute to Unity Online Radio, you're making a positive difference in your life and the lives of other spiritual seekers. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate to make a one-time donation or sign up for monthly contributions. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment by Ed McShane, a coach for your heart. When we're not feeling well, we tend to eat healthfully. 
Sickness illuminates our appetites. We drink tea instead of coffee. We eat soup instead of bread. We consume honey instead of sugar. We turn down the music. We speak in low tones. We walk a little more deliberately. We rest as we're able, and we catch up on our reading. Why don't we live our lives like this all the time? Letting go, speaking softly, receding from the urgency of life, and eating more soup sounds like a life we want to live every day. Add some flowers, a nice quilt, and some eastern-facing windows, and you've got a great foundation for a peaceful life. Illness, in its own odd way, reintroduces us to the components of how we should live away from the noises and the stress that we so often overlook. This week, take a few hours to engage in all the behaviors that help you heal while you're sick. You'll reset your priorities from doing what you should do to doing what you need to do. To find out more about A Coach for Your Heart, visit acoachforyourheart.com. Get on the path to greater success and financial freedom with best-selling author, entrepreneur, and host of The Abundance Inc. Show, Mae McCarthy. Learn how to achieve your goals and create the life you love. Join Mae for one of her empowering retreats and say yes to prosperity and limitless possibilities. Events are happening this fall and in 2020. Discover spiritual and practical tools to supercharge your success. Go to MayMcCarthy.com and click events to find out more. Sometimes you might feel so alone with your problems, you don't know where to turn. We invite you to call Silent Unity, the 24-7 prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you every day at any hour. Listen and relax as you hear their beautiful words affirm the highest and best outcome for you and those you love. No matter what's going on in your life, Silent Unity is always standing by. Call today, 816-969-2000. Open your heart and mind with Open Heart Conversations. Presented by the United Palace of Spiritual Arts in New York, Open Heart Conversations is a place to meet, discover, and learn about different faith and wisdom traditions. Celebrate our rich and beautiful diversity with talks on Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, African spirituality, and more. Tune in Thursday at 9 a.m. Central or get the podcast on demand. New shows monthly right here on UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Thanks for coming back after the break. I'm Diane Ray. This is Be Present, and I'm glad you could check in with me today. You just heard the number if you happen to be listening live, uh, spinning around out there in cyberspace (laughs) on the Internet. Please join the show if you would like to uh, comment or you have a question about dealing with fear. That number again, 816-251-3555. My guest today is Dr. Carla Marie Manley, and she's written a great book, Joy from Fear, Create the Life of Your Dreams by Making Fear Your Friend. And before the break, we were talking a little bit about a very common fear. I just wanted to jump back into this a little bit, the fear of change. And that's something that just holds so many people back. And, And during the break, I was telling you about some of uh, my own fears, uh, you know, fear of change is, is certainly one of them. And, and you said that's very common. I think we all have that fear, but it's just how you kind of deal with it. And I was thinking back to when I, I was offered a job. Here. I'm in here in San Diego, but I spent my whole life. I grew up in South Florida in Fort Lauderdale. And that was a big major move, you know, for me to throw my cats in the car and, and drive across the country 
to I didn't know really what. I mean, I knew I had a job, but you know, who knew <laughs> after that? But I think I wanted to just share with you, I think the the bigger fear for me was my fear of regret. Like I didn't want to look back and say, why didn't I do that? Or what would have happened if I had done that? And I told myself that whole way from Florida to California, I'm like, well, if you hate it, you can always go back. You know, <laughs> you can always go home. So that was kind of my safety net where, okay, well, let me try this. And if it doesn't work, I can leave. Okay. That's, that seemed to solve the problem. And then it, it did, it did work out. I mean, I'm still here and I grew to really love San Diego, but I think it was when, when I was thinking of fear as I was reading the book, that that was my bigger fear was the fear of regret than the actual fear of, of leaving my hometown. And that's a beautiful way of putting it because um, regret is something that so many people deal with, especially as they get into their, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond. And when we move through our fear, as you did, you, you really talked to it and said, hey, hey, I can always come back. And that's one of the, you didn't even realize it, but you used one of my favorite techniques is just do it, do it consciously, whatever it is, and have a plan somewhere in your mind that says, hey, here's the worst case scenario, or here's my net over here where I can come back to. But okay, now that that's done, now I can move forward wholeheartedly. And so I think that's a really important part because here's a, here's a good example, Diane. Let's say you get offered a speaking engagement and you're afraid of public speaking, but you really want to do the, the speaking engagement. So you have two choices. You can say no to the speaking engagement or you can talk to your fears, work through them and do it. And so this is something that I do with clients and friends all the time is they'll say, well, I really want to do this, but I'm afraid. And so I say, okay, well, tell me about your fears. What's your worst fear? You know, whether it's getting married or, you know, going on stage or whatever it is. So let's talk about going on stage. Okay, you're terrified of going on stage. What's the worst that can happen? Oh, my God, I'll make a total fool out of myself. Everybody will hate me. People will get up and walk out. I will, my life will be ruined. <laughs> I'll say, okay, great example. So let's really look at that. Let's envision you up on this stage. 2,000 people are watching you. And you go up, you... Or so you fall, you, know, you, you trip, you pee your pants, you know, whatever it is that happens. <laughs> Worst you case scenario. And everybody walks out. <laughs> wow, that's pretty heavy. Do you really think that's going to happen? You know, you'll probably go to the bathroom beforehand, so you won't even have any urine, right? So that's safe. So we, we don't really have to worry about that. But now let's look at, you might vomit. Okay, well, you're generally going to have a warning of that. So you might have to tell your audience, hey, I'm feeling really, really not great. I'll be right back. You go behind the stage, you vomit, and you come back on and you carry on. <laughs> Can you see yourself doing that? Yeah, I could do that. Do you think your audience would understand and maybe even get a hoot out of the fact that you're here with this great message, but that you're like them and that you get sick too? And then right. the, person and then the next say, question is yeah. it going to really ruin your life? Will your life be over? Absolutely. And the truth is that they, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, people realize it will not ruin their lives. 
whatever they're looking at, it will not ruin their lives. Whether it's a fear of writing and putting their articles or their books out there, oh, you may have to deal with some stuff. But hey, the way our culture is, something that you do that makes you trip and fall is likely to get you a lot more press anyway. So in the end, that's that true. Be, yes. <laughs> that's so, so true. when you start talking and having the conversation and not letting destructive fear hold you in its grasp that says, oh, don't write that book. Don't get on that stage. Don't change that job. Once you get out of it, imagine the worst case possibility and then a backup like you did. You imagine the backup, which is, hey, I can always go home. This isn't going to be the easiest transition in life, but hey, I'm in my car driving across country, got my cats and then life <laughs> unfolds. Exactly. See, I feel better about myself now that I was I was doing uh, what you suggested. Even then, I, I was talking about the fear. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'm just, I'm laughing because I'm imagining, you know, because I, I really don't like being on stage and people may say, oh, well, you're doing a radio show and I've, I've been in radio for most of my career, but that the key is that you're behind the microphone and no one sees you, you know, being on stage and doing a public speaking, I might be one of those people that would, you know, vomit. I mean, and thankfully it hasn't happened up until this point, you know, but you're right. Maybe even, even then, that would make the event more memorable and people would say, oh, you know, she handled that pretty gracefully, went off, went off stage and threw up and came back and, did, you know, did whatever she had to do. Um, but it's funny how we catastrophize things, right? Like, oh, that's my career's over. I'm ruined, you know, and and you're really not. And and really something else will probably come along in the media and other big stories. Someone else will do something equally or, or more, you know, ridiculous and you'll be forgotten. So it's really it's really not going to ruin your life. But it's funny yeah. how we think that it will. Now, I wanted to address, too, because um, I, I think this is interesting, because I'm a big believer of how feelings and, and emotions like fear can be stored in the physical body, and, and some of the effects of that can last years. And as I was reading your book, you address that. And, you know, you talk about PTSD, and I think we, we hear a lot about PTSD in connection with people in the military, but many people suffer from undiagnosed PTSD from traumatic events or situations that can ultimately uh, appear as, as a physical ailment or, or disease or something like that in the body. So I was hoping you could help us understand that a little bit better and how that kind of fear um, manifests itself in our bodies. Okay, it's a really, really good question. And I'm, or point, and I'm thinking, visualizing sort of an amalgamation of clients, but one in particular. And I'll think about this particular client who had an extremely toxic childhood, particularly with her father, and then a series of unfortunate um, intersections with men who did not treat her well, even at a young age. And so she actually has, and I don't use the term PTSD lightly because it is, you know, a clinical disorder and some people just throw it around. I have PTSD, you know, I, my toe pol toenail polish fell off or something, right? Ah, right. So it's much more than that. I take it very seriously. And so this client does have PTSD, quite a lot of, she actually has complex PTSD. And so when we, when she is in my office, when I first met her, her legs would twitch, her neck muscles would twitch visibly to the point where she would um, 
often wear turtlenecks or scarves even on hot days. And so what we were able to understand is that there are certain topics that would um, trigger her. And the more that she would talk about them, the more she would become activated in her body. And then as we worked through some of the issues and really made them heal for her, um, she, she, you know, did the work that was necessary to get them out of her body and into a sense of understanding and making sense of the trauma that she experienced and letting go of that more and more. She, her leg twitches stopped, her arm twitches stopped. Now at this point, she has occasional twitches in her neck and we're down actually to, to a few subjects, a few topics only. Of course, they're the core ones that are triggering for her. And so you can see in cases like that, and even her body posture is now much more relaxed. She doesn't walk as stiffly. She doesn't hold herself like a tin soldier anymore as much unless she's getting really stressed or comes in really stressed. And so you can see how indeed male or female, you know, age doesn't really matter when we do not work through our trauma, when we do not metabolize it and make sense out of it, it is going to go somewhere. And it will generally be stored in the body, often coming out just like a tea kettle that needs to have an outlet for the steam. Sometimes it will come out in dysfunctional habits, you know, outbursts of anger, domestic domestic violence, um, different addictions, whether it's alcohol, spending, porn, whatever it is, these things, and some of them still stay in the body. Um, so I definitely believe that the only way through trauma is through trauma, meaning whether it's PTSD, whether it's coming out in anxiety, depression, whatever it is, we can't ignore it. We can't compartmentalize. We cannot forget about it. We can't drink it away. Those things don't work. The only way through it is through it. And also, do you feel that in addition to some of the, the physical, um, you know, manifestations that you described in your patient, do you think it could show up in things like you know, cancer or a chronic illness situation like that uh, stemming from PTSD. Absolutely, Diane. Um, and research shows, even if it's, you know, more peripheral, research does show that people who, de who live with chronic stress, right, and so we need to understand where that chronic stress from comes from, have many more physical health problems whether it's high blood pressure, heart disease, um, diabetes. So, of course, the body is not intended to function in a way where it's chronically bathed in stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. Those, our bodies are meant to deal with those only in cases of severe threat, right? Yet, we now live in environments, even if say you're in a toxic job and it's not right for you and you're chronically stressed by it, even if it's a fairly you know, moderate level of stress, that stress and negativity could definitely be damaging the body. Right, if not addressed, if people don't really take a look at it, 
it's it's going to show up somewhere. And in the book, you have these great exercises. Uh, it, it's very experiential. You know, you really take people uh, through ways that they can listen to their body, you know, in managing their fear and their emotions. And things like diet, how much sleep you get, uh, those kind of things are, are really important when you're trying to manage your fear. So could you give us a couple of a couple of tips or, you know, maybe a simple exercise that maybe the listeners could try? Um, absolutely. So I think one of the most important things, let's just talk about food for a minute, appetite for a minute, and that might be the most helpful way to look at it because whatever we're not addressing within with increased self-awareness will manifest somewhere. Again, whether it's cancer, whether it's being overweight, unless there's, you know, some sort of, you know, hormonal issue or something going on, right? So we want to look at how maybe, and we'll stick with just eating, how eating, overeating in this case, can be a result of chronic stress, anxiety, or depression. Food, when we're born, one of the first things we learn is that mother's milk or some, some substance close to that is soothing. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel comforted. Thus, we learn early on, very primitive level, that food is comforting. So if we are out of sync, out of touch with what our needs are internally, our need for rest, our need for quiet, our need for sweetness in life, then we will reach toward that which we learned early on to be a comfort, which is food. And so if we aren't aware of how that relationship can get out of whack and be driven by fear, we might come home and we're afraid of being lonely, afraid of being unloved, you know, overcome with stress from work. So we might reach for too much pizza, too much wine, too much, you know, of too much chocolate in a very primitive way of not addressing the underlying issue. And so then our diet gets out of balance. Our very way of being gets out of balance. And we're not really even tasting often that which we're eating or we're looking for sweetness in our life. So we're looking maybe sometimes for more sweets in the fridge, right? And so all of that comes from decreased self-awareness. How does that relate to fear? Being out of touch with one's inner world comes from a place of fear. If we are not willing to slow down and look at who we are, at what our needs are, our appetites, whether it's sexual, whether it's food, whether it's an appetite for self-care, sleep, whatever it is, we are going to get out of whack. And when we bring in the voice of constructive fear, that voice will tell you, hey, slow down a second. You've had one drink. That's plenty, right? You don't need any more than that. Or maybe instead of wine, maybe you'd really like a glass of club soda or a glass of herbal tea. Notice the conversation, Diane. Okay, so you're full. Let's pay attention to your belly, you know. You're reaching for your third slice of bread, right? And it really tastes good and it's wonderful, but are you full? And so that's the conversation that we can get into so that we can get in touch. And notice how the theme, Diane, is the same no matter what we're working on. 
whether it's exercise, whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship, it is about slowing down and listening to the positive voice that will steer you right. And just being able to listen to that voice, that's so important. So, I mean, there's ways to cultivate that, right? Absolutely. And so when we look at that as an exercise, the most important exercise I could offer to listeners is start having the conversation. Have the conversation. I have the conversation with myself. Here's a really good example. I love yoga. I'm a yoga instructor, but I'm too busy to teach anymore. So I, you know, but I love walking. So I have these two things that I love to do, practicing yoga and going for walks. Sometimes my voice will come up and it'll say, you better go to yoga. It's Saturday morning. You better go. You're paying for that membership, you know, right? And then the other part is saying, Oh, but really what you want to want is a walk around the lake. You know, it's okay. Go for the walk. So I, so I'm like, no, no. So the other voice steps in. Nope. You paid for this. You're paying for the membership. You better go. So I have the conversation and then I say, you know what, what I really need today is my walk. That's what I really want. And so we can learn that is an exercise, just getting used to having, and you know what? Sometimes And this is the truth. Sometimes that little negative voice will win. Sometimes when your belly is full and you've had a chocolate chip cookie and there's another warm, gooey one right there and your belly says, I'm full, sometimes we're going to reach for the chocolate chip cookie. And that is laughable. And that is life. And that is okay. But we did it with awareness. Right. I love that. Just being aware. And that's so funny, the example that you just gave, because I have those conversations almost every Saturday, you know, you need to get up and go to yoga. Um, You know, (laughs) you've already paid for it. You have to go. Um, And I do enjoy walks, too. So I I try to talk to myself about that. You know, what am I going to do today? And and actually, I just bought a bicycle. So I'm going to add that into the mix and get back on the bike. So I'll be having more of those conflicting conversations, you know, on, on a Saturday morning, but well, and, and, and paying attention to your words. body, right? Oh, I'm sorry. What? No, I was saying and, and paying attention to your body, right? Like how you're feeling. Like you said, well, I'd rather, I'd rather walk on the lake than go to class and that's okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And I caught, I work neuro neurolinguistically. So I noticed that you said have these conflicting conversations. Um, I like to look at it because, you know, my husband, he's really funny. He'll use like use the word argue or something. And I say, honey, let's not use a word that's charged. You know, when you're telling me about this thing with an employee, it we use the word, you know, argue or conflict, we get a little charged around it. So let's look at instead of these voices conflicting, let's look at them compromising and talking and just having this elegant back and forth that really is a win-win because destructive fear, that voice that tells us, go to yoga, you've paid for it, right? Well, that is destructive. And when we just start looking at it as a graceful dialogue, then it gives destructive fear, less power, because we're not encouraging the conflict. We're just encouraging a two-way conversation. We are actually, in my mind, claiming space, because destructive fear has had 99% of the stage, sometimes 100% of the stage. And so when we um, 
I'm going to segue quickly because I know we don't have a lot of time. One of the most common themes I, I work with is people, particularly women, who will come to me and say, I'm terrified of confrontation. I'm terrified of confrontation. You know, I'm terrified of it. And sometimes men will say the same thing. I, I can't talk. You know, I'm not going to go and talk about this with someone. I am fearful of confrontation. And I work with them and I say, well, what's being confronted? You know, oh, I don't like conflict. I don't like conflict. Well, why are you so sure there's going to be a conflict? What about if we look at it as a conversation? It might be a charged conversation. It might have energy to it. But let's look at it as a dialogue back and forth. And as we work through that theme, Diane, you can watch their energy get calmer. Because all of the sudden, we've taken away these destructive ghosts, often from childhood or traumatic experiences, where there was conflict. There was true, intense fighting and conflict. And in our adult worlds, we don't need to go there anymore. We can learn to manage that. We can learn to be angry in a really graceful way. Maybe people weren't right. angry with us gracefully as children or as young adults, but we can do it differently now. That's so great. I love that. See, this is why you're the clinical psychologist and you wrote the book. And I'm going to reframe that. I'm going to use that. Rather than saying I'm in conflict with myself, it's more of a compromise. And, yes. and you're, you're so right in the wording and in how you you address those things. That That is really good. <laughs> there was a big light bulb moment um, that I got with that one. And I was thinking too, when you brought up conflict, because that's such a huge thing and you're so right, with, especially with women, um, men as well. But I was thinking of a conversation that I had a, at another a previous job and I was so afraid to confront this person. I was so angry with her. And I, I spoke to um, a friend of mine and said, look, you're going to go in there and just just talk to her. And I did. And it, I mean, it wasn't the wonderful, it didn't end out where we're like hugging it out or anything like that. But I, I kind of came to a, we came to an agreement, like, look, we have to get along in this situation. How can we find out or how can we do this? And that's what I asked her. It basically, it was like, you, you don't like me really. I don't like you. I mean, let's be honest. Let's try to work it out. Let's, let's communicate was what I was saying. But I felt so much better after because it didn't turn out it wasn't the big horrible fight that I thought it would be it just was saying let's communicate let's try to work this out and and it was it was much better and it wasn't as scary as I thought it would be but I was terrified to confront this person like what do we think is really going to happen you know a big fight or hair pulling absolutely <laughs> and when we prepare for that fight if I'm going to fight with you, right, my energy, it's one of the biggest things I see with couples, my energy that, you know, if, if I'm the, the person in the relationship, if, if a client's saying, hey, you know, I'm going to fight with you or something, I'm gonna, my energy is going to be, ah, right? But if somebody says, hey, I'm going to have a conversation with you. And I see that so much in couples where they've become so used to fighting to get them to the place of communicating, of listening to each other. And a really, and that's why I love looking at neurolinguistics because people often, here's a, a funny, funny little one for listeners to take with them. So many times I hear clients say, I am so overwhelmed. I am so freaking overwhelmed. I should do this. I should do that. 
So first I pick up on the shoulds, right? Because it's a very shaming, commonly used word. But the other word is overwhelmed. And I'll ask them, I'll say, hey, so here's an exercise for listeners. When you think of the word overwhelm, what comes to mind, an image from nature, something that occurs in nature? So just think about it, pause. And then for many people, they will have an image of something like a tornado, a tsunami, a horrible, you know, overpowering downpour, a flood, right? And I say, okay, is that a word you want to use in the future? A word that makes you feel what? What do you feel when you're in the midst of a tsunami, right? Or a hurricane? I feel powerless. I feel out of control. Yes, yes. It's, it's a very charged word, isn't it? What is the word you might pick that has some upside to it, that has the same sense of overwhelm, but also has gives you some power back? And I will tell you, again, using my percentages, about 98% of the time, the person will pick the word challenged or challenging. And they realize so that by simply by switching verbiage to, I feel challenged. Because a challenge is something that has an upside. We can overcome a challenge. It makes such a difference. And it's been so great to talk with you. We're just uh, running out of time, but I would love to have you back. Your new book is also available, Aging Joyfully. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.